And here we go. So we are two weeks left in Romans chapter 8. And it has been a very good chapter to us, right? It's been an incredible opportunity, I think, for us to just sit down and really break down what is Scripture telling us about the reality of the Spirit's work in our life. And throughout this entire chapter, we've constantly seen the faithfulness and the character of God made much of that we, in turn, would be able to rest, be at peace, and then also seek to love others, right? That it's a fullness. It's a God has done something for us, so in response to that, we do something for others, okay? It is the work of the Spirit in our life. And, and a lot of the context has been this kind of pain and trial and suffering, right? That there is a reality to the fact that most of us in the room have experienced some level of suffering in our lives. And we've said that if you haven't yet, that this day will come, okay? We live in a broken world, and because of that, man, there's gonna be pain, there's gonna be hardship in our life. And so in the midst of that, we trust that the Spirit of God is working in our present and securing for us a future glory that gives us hope beyond hope that maybe we can make it through this, okay? So it's God's work in the present, it's his hope for the future that ground us in the midst of trial and suffering today. And so the context doesn't change much today. I want to bring this up because I told my wife I would, and she's not here. And so uh, if you talk to her, just let her know I did this. Um, so after every sermon on Sundays, Verity and I will go home and we'll have lunch or whatever. And I'll always ask her, I say, hey, like, what do you think? Like, how did, did, did what did you learn did what I tried to communicate actually come across? Uh, what was it? Uh, she usually, in these moments, makes fun of all of my um, really silly illustrations, okay? Uh, you know they're silly illustrations um, when you just take a look at Andy Faulkner and she's shaking her head like this, okay? That's, so just look at Andy whenever I do, and then you'll know that was kind of silly. But last week, if you remember, I was trying to talk about this future good that God promises. So Romans 8, 28, right? For those who love God and are called according to his purpose all things work out for the good, okay? But we said, man, one thing we have to do in the midst of this is understand and really redefine what good is. Because good for us, okay, is a little bit different from probably what God is trying to communicate his greatest good and greatest purposes. And so I talked about, man, in the midst of our desire for good things, that changes almost every minute. And I said, hey, you know, it's like this. My wife and I, we used to be really excited about stamps and our passport, but now we're excited about a dresser we got from Full, full Circle Trade and Thrift, right? I mean, so like there's this. And so anyway, so Verity comes out to me and I was like, listen, what do you think? And I'm expecting... Every Sunday, I expect her to say, man, that was mind-blowing, and the Lord really spoke to me, and man, you're a prophet. I mean, it's just like, and, uh, and, and usually it's, uh, she, why did you make our life sound boring? That's what, that's what she said. She goes, everyone thinks we're boring, and, and she's from South Africa. That's my best South African, okay? And, uh, and so, listen, I'm being serious. I had to tell you this. She wants you to know that our life is awesome, okay? So, <laughs> so we, we do way more fun things than shop for old furniture. Um, and it's lighthearted to start off, but in the midst of that, she also said one more thing uh, in response to last week's sermon. And it was, I think you need to spend a little more time truly breaking down this whole God's good thing. Not that God's good in his character, but what is God's good? What is God's greatest purpose we landed on last week that God's greatest purpose for man, right? His greatest purpose for man is that we would look and be conformed to the image of Jesus and then find ourselves in eternity with him forever, okay? 
that beyond any present good that we might want to experience, beyond, listen, we want this job and we want this house and we want this girlfriend, whatever that thing is, it is not, it does not compare to the good that God has his greater purpose to make you, to make me more like Jesus and secure for us a future glory when we die, okay? That being his greatest purpose for us. He said, I think, I think you need to hit that harder because even in my own heart, I still crave these good things of this world and don't see how great God might, or how great the things that God provides and offers might actually be for my life. We landed on last week as our application. I challenged you guys. I said, listen, go to coffee with someone this week and, and really just go over a couple of questions. And one of the biggest questions I wanted us all to ask was, when we begin to think about the good things in our life, right? When you start taking, you step back, you're triaging your life, and you say, man, these are the good things. How often does I look more like Jesus today than I did yesterday make the list? Like, how often, if we're honest with ourselves as Christians, do we put that on our list of the good things in our life when Scripture tells us that should be paramount, should be priority? And so I hope many of you had that conversation. If you didn't, I just want to reiterate that on the front end. Go have that conversation, right? If, if you don't have someone to have that conversation with, come and talk to me, right? Let's sit down. Let's engage that. Let's, let's spend time talking about God's good in our life. Now, um, what today is going to be, and, and this is what I said to Verity. I said, man, that's fantastic because uh, verses 29 and 30, as we get towards the end of this chapter, is actually going to give us a great platform to talk about the how and the why of God's good. Okay. So how does this all work out? If, if God's chief purpose for man is to make you look more like Jesus and to glorify you in heaven, how is he accomplishing this feat? Right? How is he getting you from wretched, evil sinner Right? who invents new ways of evil, as we saw in Romans 1, how is he getting you from there to glorified in heaven with him, right? seated in heavenly places with Christ? How does that transition happen? And so we're going to get a little theological today, which some of you love, and some of you are already like, listen, I don't even like the, I don't like that word. I want us to understand, we're not going to delve super deep into a lot of these words, because there's a lot of them in this text. You probably just heard it when we read it. We're not going to jump in into deep, deep levels today about each one of these, because I don't think that's the main purpose of what Paul is trying to communicate. Okay. But nevertheless, we're going we're gonna to go there. Okay. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Now, um, as we sit in the how, uh, how God does this, we also want to answer the question of why. So how God achieves his task, and then why would that be his chief purpose? Of all the things that God, who created everything, could care about. Why is his chief purpose for you and for me that we look more like Jesus? Why is that it? Okay. And so we're going to answer those two questions today, how and why. Now, before we move on into the text, I want to say this. Um, a theme that's going to run through this week and really take us through, I mean, really chapter 11, all the way to the end of 11, if we're, if we're really being not, is is God's sovereignty and control over the entire equation. Okay. God's complete and total control and sovereignty over the entire story, over the entire path, over your entire life. That is going to be the foundational principle that all of this must be interpreted by. Okay. God's in control. God's doing this. Now, immediately, there's some of you in here who are already going, take it easy. 
And, and some of you don't even know why, right? You're just like, there's this flinch, like, I mean, God's in control of everything. So at, at what point do I engage? Like, where am I at in the midst of this? And, and listen, you do have, there's, there's going to be that, okay? But because of the culture and the air we breathe, we are so in love with being in control ourselves that when we have to hear that someone else is doing it for us, it terrifies us, right? We walk around thinking we're the most capable people in the world, right? You look at other people's lives and you think, man, that guy's an idiot. I would never do what he did, right? The truth is, I, I, we have a pastor friend down in the valley, man of God, made some terrible decisions. Cheated on his wife, multiple women in his church, was asked to step down, Okay? Many people I know I've talked to, they say they'll look at that guy and they'll say, how could he do that? I would never do that, right? How, how could he cheat on his wife? I would never do that. And I sit down in these conversations with people. I said, man, I'm going to be honest. Okay, maybe that's true for you. I'm about three or four bad decisions away from doing that. That's the way that sin works. It, it starts here. Okay, I, I, I did this. I thought I was in control so I could look at this little thing. It's not that bad. And then, and then I stepped into that, and then, you know what, I'm still in control, so I, I can take this step also, and then it's not that bad. And then guess what? We're all about, all about three or four bad decisions away from doing what he did. That's the reality. But we fall into that trap when we exist in a paradigm that thinks that we always have it so well figured out that we're always in control. And so, man, when we hear a text like this, and as we hear, listen, Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11, God's sovereignty in the midst of a greater story, it, we, we have pushback because, again, we fall into, I've got this. I know how to run my life better than you, God. Doesn't matter that you created me. Doesn't matter that you created everything I know. I'm on it, okay? So that's gonna be a big part of our pushback. In our culture today, there's constantly this fight between is there such a thing as destiny or not? Right? Is there such a thing as fate? And I think our culture is trending towards the answer of no. That there is no destiny, there is no fate, because you make your own destiny. One of the best TV shows to ever, I think, uh, really encapsulize this is, uh, why, what, what show are you guessing? Lost, yes. Nate Dunn. <laughs> Nate Dunn is Lost. Okay, how many people have seen Lost? Okay, so, okay, cool. 50% non-Christian today. Fair enough. Okay, just kidding, just kidding. I'm just kidding. I love you. Um, so Lost was this beautiful show. I mean, until the last couple years. But for the beginning and for most of it, just amazing. But it, it played with this, this constant, are we in control of our destiny? Or, or is something else in control of our destiny? Am I, are we supposed to be on the island? Or are we supposed to be home? Where does our volition begin? Where does fate start? I mean, on and on and on. It captures these things beautifully. And honestly, I, I think at the end of the day, it, it pushes you towards destiny and fate. Now, I, I wasn't a super big fan of the ending, but nevertheless, it pushes us that direction. And I think, if I'm honest, I think that's why the show was so great. Because constantly we experience a culture that says, that's all about, and we've talked about this, right? Rational thought, scientific experimentation. If you can't prove it, it's not real. And so destiny and fate seem so ethereal and crazy that there's no way that we can engage with it. 
But then when we get to watch a show where it's like, man, there's just something going on because maybe, just maybe, there is something deeper. There is a, there is a, a deeper level, a greater story that might be inviting us into something we cannot control on our own. We don't like it, but there's something in us that I think is drawn to it. Okay. And so let's start verse 29 and 30. I'm going to read them together uh, because they're so tied together today. Okay. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay? So we have the how and we have the why. First, the how. How does God do this? What people, uh, what many theologians, they'll look at verses 29 and 30 and they'll call this the golden chain. Right? The golden chain. It is the series of events that God works through in order to achieve his greatest purpose, okay? And, and we see the tie-in just from that word for, right? F-O-R at the beginning of verse 29 ties us right back to where we landed in 28 with the chief purpose, okay? So this is what we're trying to understand. How could God do this? And so he gives us this beautiful golden chain of workings of God to get us there. And so here they are. For new, predestined, called, justified, glorified, okay? Oftentimes, we'll slip sanctified in there between justified and glorified because we want to make sure we talk about it, but it's not there in the text, okay? So you get this, this kind of arc, this whole thing, um, fully understanding this, that every step along the way is 100% in God's hands, okay? That every single part of this the foreknowledge was all God, okay? The predestining, God, okay? The calling, God. Justifying, God. Glorifying, God. Every aspect of this arc of our story, this chain is all God. It's all his sovereignty. He is acting in every piece of this thing. Now, um, again, this is contrary to what we want to think because we think, okay, if I start at this point on a path or a ladder, I work really hard and then I get to the next promotion, right? I get to the next point on the path, whether it's, listen, it could be a board game, right? You play Candyland, you earn, you roll the dice, you earn it, you move to the next space. The corporate ladder, right? You work, you work really hard, you get promoted and then you go to the next position, I was watching, because my wife's gone this week, I get to watch whatever movies I want, which is fantastic. So British movies go away, and then here comes Eddie Murphy. And so, uh, so how many people have seen Coming to America? Okay, just a fantastic film, right? And so there's a scene where uh, Louis Anderson is working at the McDowell's, not to be confused with McDonald's. They have the arches, or they don't have the arches. They have the, uh, I can't remember what it was, the gold, whatever. And, um, and so he's working as the lettuce guy, okay? And, and, he, and he's doing his thing, and he's cutting lettuce, and he's talking to Eddie Murphy, and he goes, man, today I'm cutting lettuce, but who knows, if I work hard enough, in six or seven months, I might be on french fries. And then after that, I'm on the grill. And he just lays out this whole path in each instance saying, okay, if I work hard enough, 
if I do everything I'm supposed to do, then I will move to the next point on this corporate ladder, on this structure. And so listen, all of us are ingrained with that, that each of us, if we want to move along this path, we immediately read this thing, okay, well, okay, if God, okay, he foreknew, but then, okay, if he called, then I had to do something, and then in my sanctification, I have to work, and then on and on and on, it becomes, again, self-focused and about us when the whole thing is all God, okay? When the whole thing ends up and has to be all God. So um, let's break these down again. I'm not going to spend a ton of time getting into the theological depths of these things because we're going to flesh these out more over the next honestly, the next couple months, okay? So, but let's look at them. Let's start with, uh, let's start with conformed, right? So in verse 29, that we be conformed to the image of Christ. So over the top of this entire chain, entire series is being conformed to Christ. Conformity overarches all of these events. God's chief purpose, making us more like Jesus, conformity, making us look like Christ. Here we go, returning us to the image we once bore perfectly. So, Genesis 1, God creates man, he creates woman in his image, imago Dei. Then chapter 3, the fall happens, and now that image is distorted. It's like a broken mirror. So when people look at us, they see a a distorted version of God. We were made fully in his image. It is now broken in the existence we have. And in Christ, the pieces begin to get put back together. Okay? And so God conforms us to the image that we once used to image perfectly to the world before the fall. Okay? So the first way does it. Foreknowledge. Foreknowledge. And I love, if you come here, you'll notice I love uh, the dictionary. And so I always look up these words and then just try and look at, now what does culture as a whole say that these words mean, okay? Uh, and then what does, what does, what do they mean biblically, right? Sometimes we'll even use urban dictionary when we're really getting crazy, okay? So foreknowledge. Webster says it's the special ability to see and know about events before they actually occur. Okay, foreknowledge, to be able to see and know about actual events before they actually occur. So I know the future. That's essentially what this is communicating. Now, here is sometimes where the English language falls uh, apart a little bit. Um, To know, as being communicated by Webster, seems to be a little more kind of a, a shallow knowledge. Like, I know about these events, But what's being communicated in the text here, this know is a richer version of the word to know. It's to actually be with. It's as in I know my wife. We are together. I know about her and I just know her. She is known by me. Amos 3.2 says this, as you only have I known. He's talking about the people of Israel. You only have I known of all the families of earth. So when it's communicating this idea of foreknowledge, it's not just that God knew about you or knew about your life or knew about the decisions you would make. He just knew you. Before the foundations of the earth, he knew you. You were known by the creator before you were created. Okay? Foreknowledge. Foreknowledge. Um, Let me say this. When we think about creation and we think about our lives, and and even as we've gone through Romans 8, 
it's easy for us to look at the way God works as very reactionary, right? That when there's problems, we go to God, we pray, and so God comes in and takes care of it, right? That God, all he really seemed to do was look at chaos and then say, I'm going to make order of chaos. To look at brokenness and say, I'm going to fix the brokenness. But it's a whole other thing to realize that God was the author of the chaos and brokenness. But that he didn't let us sit in it, but rather he provides a way out and he brings comfort and peace in the spirit and the future glory. Okay. Why? That his chief purpose would be accomplished to make you look more like Jesus, not necessarily to make us have a sweeter life. These are hard, it's a hard thing. So even foreknowledge, we, we began to get the pieces. And here's an example, right? You look at just the genealogy of Jesus. Like if you just go to Matthew and you do, you just run through name by name of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, our Savior, you will be blown away at the people God used. Do you realize that Jesus is of the lineage of the baby that was had in adultery between David and Bathsheba? Don't know that story. We can talk about it later. Do you realize that in the midst of adultery and murder, our Savior comes? God doesn't just respond to chaos. He knew every aspect of David's actions and said, this is what we're going to do. He knows every aspect of your pain, your trials, what you're going through in your life, and what the best good is for you. And that has been the story from day one. God's character raising up here to just show how good and faithful he is to his people. This next one is predestined. Now, one of my favorite pastors, when he comes to this word in, in, uh, in sermons, he'll just, he'll come across and, and so he'll go predestined. And uh, if you just want to know what that means, it means predestined. And then just moves on. Because we, we want to find a wiggle room out of this one. Okay, and listen, we're going to talk more about this, so I, this is not this sermon, but it means in the Webster's to determine the fate of in advance, okay? To determine the fate of in advance is to predestine, and this is of the chain, in my experience, in conversation, the one we have the hardest time with, because again, it comes back to that wrestling. Are we in control of our destiny and fate, or is something else? We see it all out in culture. We see it in our lives, and again, we hate the fact that just maybe you don't have control of everything in your life, okay? And so we are predestined. Paul uses that word twice for us. Our fate is determined beforehand. So God foreknows, he sees everything, looks upon everything, predicts everything, and then predestines according to that, okay? Now, predestination, we will get into more as we move forward. If you have more questions on that, that's expected. Okay, next one, called. Called, Webster says this, to command or request to come and be present. Okay, to command or request to come and be present. And so God foreknows, he predestines, determines the fate of all of humanity. Okay, and then in the midst of that says, okay, I'm going to call those whom I've predestined. So notice, th these are attached. This is a chain. It's not, some are not predestined, but they are called. That doesn't exist. It's that God foreknew, those who he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called to himself. It's the chain. There's, you can't take one out. It is 
all, it's describing one people group here. So he calls, he draws those, he comes. And listen, I, this one, the more and more I try and think about this whole idea, the only, the only way I can explain it, or at least the easiest way for me to understand it is my own story. And, and maybe you guys can get that too, right? But I know that for 18 years, and I mean, I feel like I've used this story for a while, but for 18 years, I was running my own direction and had absolutely no desire to be a Christian. Like it, it wasn't any part of me that said, yeah, that might be a good idea. In fact, all of the things that I wanted to do in life at 18, I was doing, and it seemed great. I applied to go to San Diego State University because I wanted to live that life that you can live at San Diego State University. God had different plans. And so for some reason, six non-Christians sat in a living room one day and thought starting a Bible study when none of us had experience with it before seemed like a good idea. And then that summer, all six of us get saved, get discipled, and are plugged into the church our freshman year of college. That was not me. I know that wasn't me because I'm far too stubborn to believe what anybody has to say, let alone would I go completely the other direction on my own accord. God foreknew, predestined, and then called me. He called us to himself, and so we believe. Okay. The commands of God on a man, on a woman, come to me. Be my savior. Okay, next, justified. Justified, and we talked about, man, we spent... Uh, I think like seven months talking about justification as we got through the start of Romans. Okay, so justification over and over is a, is, it's really like Romans is like a primer for justification. Justification by faith. This means God made you right in his sight. That's it. Justified. Webster says it like this, to declare to be true or proper despite opposition. To declare to be true or proper despite opposition. So here we go. Everything about you and everything about me said we did not deserve the love of God. Said we did not deserve him to be our father. Says we did not deserve salvation. Says we did not deserve community. On and on. Everything about us said the opposite of what we actually get when we are justified in Christ. What an incredible gift. So God knows. He predestines. He calls and then he justifies. He makes those whom he has called, those in Christ, he makes them blameless. He makes them proper. He makes them righteous in the sight of God the Father. Okay? So this is the arch. Okay? So we're at justified. Next one, um, glorified. Okay? Glorified. Webster's, to assign a high status or value in. Okay? This one of all the definitions that we get from Webster, okay, falls the most short. Because the glorification, the glorified nature that we are invited into is far greater than, hey, good job. Right, it's better than, hey, how great are you? Let's let you stand on stage for 10 minutes. It's not a, hey, let's give you a trophy or a ribbon so everyone knows how great you are for the next 15 minutes. Glorification. God glorifying man, glorifying woman is an invitation to step into something that only God himself has experienced. God's perfect, God is gloried, God is glorified. 
He is due all praise and honor. Here's, here's what happens. When you are glorified, this has nothing, ready? Has nothing to do with you and everything to do with Christ in you. That he raises us up because of Jesus. Because Christ was raised up, we too will be raised up. In him, we too are glorified. Now, this one's a bit confusing because glorified obviously has a past tense to it, right? ED at the end. And so you're like, well, wait a minute. Like, if this is glorified, it should be better, right? Like, so what's happening here is what we call, we often say is the already but not yet, okay? In other words, it is a truth that is already true, but a reality that is not yet realized, Already, but not yet. This is often used in, in when we speak about the kingdom of God, in which we're going to do a five-week series on the kingdom of God right after Easter. It's going to be phenomenal. You should be there. Okay? Uh, glorified, though, this is one of those. I think the best illustration for it is adoption. Okay, the best illustration is adoption. Um, if, if, and I don't know if any of you have ever been in, at an orphanage or been an orphan yourself or have adopted a child. But you go to these orphanages and you spend time with these kids. And oftentimes what happens in these situations is parents come in, they get to know the children, and then they leave and they're making a decision, man, are we going to adopt them or not, right? And they're saying, okay, well, we got to know them. And do you, you think we, you want to do one? You want to do both brother and sister? I mean, this is the whole gamut of decision making in the midst of that. Now, I've been at orphanages and I've seen this happen where the, the, uh, the foster mother will come in or those who run the orphanage would come in and say to the young gal or young man and say, you've been adopted, okay? You've been adopted. So it is true for them now. They have been adopted, but the truth is, is that the parents aren't there to pick them up yet. Okay, that, that they sit there and the reality of their life in the moment, the truth is they are adopted. That is their new identity, adopted child, in the family that has adopted them, but they have not fully realized the benefit of being in that family because they haven't left their circumstance. Okay, that's coming. So we are glorified now. The truth is, is those in Christ, those whom he has foreknew, predestined, called, justified, the truth is for us, we sit in this truth now that we are to be gloried with God, but we don't get to see it or realize it for a little bit. Okay. Already, but not yet. That's the how. Okay. That's the how. That's the ark. And like I said, over the next weeks, we'll delve more into some of these things to hopefully flesh out even more of the process and the work and the sovereignty of God in the midst of it. So here we go. This is the why, okay? The why. I think if we look at this chain, this series, we look at verses 29 and 30, what we see as the why is really a 30,000 foot level of God's mission in the world, Okay? A 30,000 foot level of God's mission in the world. His chief purpose realized through his actions. Okay. Um, before we move on, before we get into God's purpose for us, we have to understand God's purpose in general. Now, over and over and over in Scripture, you're going to constantly find men and women of God doing things, but they're doing them for God's name, for God's sake, and for God's glory. 
So even when you hear about the, so right, you go to, uh, you go to Hebrews 11 and you see kind of the hall of faith, right? You see all these guys who've just crushed it, men and women who've done these great deals. And you go back and you read their accounts and you read their verses, you read all this stuff. Countless times it's going to say, yeah, I did this for the glory of God. I did this for the sake of his name. I did this to make his name great. The paramount, the priority of God is God. God is about God. Okay? God is about God. He is about his glory. He's about making his name known to the nations. Before anything else, God is about God. Now, there, even in the midst of that, we, we have someone even a cringe even with God, right? Because it's like, what is he, just like proud? And, you know, he's just sitting on there like, love me, you know? Like, how many Twitter followers does God have? Andy just shook her head. We on, honestly, we have that flinch to just say, man, God, why, why do you care about that? You're God, you don't. God does not think the way you think. He has not acted the way you have acted. In all the ways that when I give you praise or you give me praise and then we get welled up with pride and it becomes about us, that doesn't happen with God. God is just God. He is his character. He is not proud. He is not boastful. He just is God. He doesn't take compliments and make them about him. He doesn't make it, oh, look at me. It's not this, not the way we understand pride. God is perfect. Never made a bad decision. Has breathed life into this world has given everything, has orchestrated every event, authored everything, has, has drawn thousands, millions to himself when he did not have to. God is about God because when we are about God, when we make much of him, the joy in our hearts, our hearts abounds. Okay. When God is lifted up and glorified corporately and individually, our own hearts well up with the joy of the Lord. Because instead of constantly running this rat race to make it more about me, to make people think I'm greater, to make people think I'm funnier, to make people think I'm more smart, that I have a better job, that I drive this, that I do this, instead it's constantly saying, man, I boast only in Jesus, the only one who is worthy of worship and glory in this universe. Okay. God is about God. Um, I, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but I watched the show Dexter, and uh, I think it's a very good show, and I watch it mostly just for reasons to hate sin, uh, not that I like the show. And, uh, and so we're watching, watching Dexter, and there was a quote from one of the, one of the people in the, in, the, in the show, I can't remember what it was, but they were talking about um, Plato, Okay. And they were talking about kind of, well, they weren't talking about Platonism, but essentially at the heart, they were talking about Platonism and, and getting into the midst of this. And they started talking about the quote unquote, the fractured self. Okay, and they're just like, in this show, they're going back and forth about how Plato, man, just came up with this great idea about the fractured self. Right, that Plato, this great thinker, was like, okay, you know what I realized is that we're all broken. 
the truth is, is that, and that's been around since day one, right? Plato didn't create that. God did, right? God authored that. God knew that. God informs that. God shapes that. So even the greatest thinkers, God thinks more. The greatest philosophers, God philosophizes more. He is worthy of every glory, honor, and praise. Now, if you guys are all, if any of you are out there and you're like, no, I know Plato. Listen, I know Plato, man, he was, he was trying to figure out spirituality. I mean, this was a, a spiritual decision where he was trying to say, man, we are so messed up kind of in this, temp, in this world, the fractured self, and then the other world is heavenly and spiritual. I get that. So I just said all that so I don't get an email, okay? Because I know there's a few of you. You just pushed your glasses up. Just, just kidding. God is about God, and he definitely is worth it. He's worth every glory and honor and praise. Okay, now, here's where I want to land for us. A few things. Um, one, there, there's three reasons why this is beneficial for us, right? To glorify God, to point to him, to make much of him, is why it's three beneficial reasons for you. One, it pleases God, and that's just always a good decision, okay? It pleases God. I mean, a lot of people don't realize, the Bible says multiple times, over and over, you can please God. You can make God happy. You can't make him love you more than he already does. You can't make him happier with you than he already is, if you're in Jesus, okay? But you can please him. You can bring joy to your father. That's reason enough. Second one, um, it gives us peace and joy. And it gives us all of the fruit of the spirit that as we point to God, as we set our minds on him to make much of him, we find and reap the benefits. And this third one we haven't talked about yet. Um, but it's how the good purpose of God, it's how the mission of God is continually reproduced in our world. Okay. The why of this whole thing, right? How, this is how he does it. Why? That his ongoing mission and purpose for this world to make us look more like Jesus, to glorify us in heaven would be accomplished, that that would happen. This is beneficial for us and for God because then the people of God in a constant cycle are reproducing more Christ followers to make his name great and to point people back to Jesus so that the cycle constantly continues where the chief purpose of man can be accomplished. Okay. The chief purpose of man, to make you and to make me more like Christ, glorify us in heaven, accomplished as more and more and more of his children live out the implications and the realities of the gospel. Okay. The truth of the story of God. Now, ultimately, God wants you and wants me, I believe, to look like Jesus, to live like Jesus, to act like Jesus, because it's an outward reflection of an inward reality. Okay. If you are here and Jesus is your Savior, you have been foreknown, you have been predestined, you have been called, you have been justified. God is conforming you to his image and already but not yet you are glorified. The reality, the identity that you live in is saved, is Christian, is when God looks at you, when God looks at me, he sees Jesus. He doesn't see all, listen, he doesn't see all your sin and brokenness. 
he sees Jesus in you, the blood of Christ cleansing you. And so the number one reason why I think, right, that God wants us to live out, to, to live out his purpose for man is that we would just actually reflect who we are on the inside. Instead of constantly living this life where the outward doesn't make any sense with the inward, but that as we pursue Jesus, these things get closer and closer and closer until that day where we are glorified and they're like this. No more sin, no more pain, no more brokenness. God drawing his people back. A couple things to apply as we head out. I want to read from Paul's words to a church in Thess- Thessalonica. In 2 Thessalonians, he says this, But we always ought to give thanks to God for you, Brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through the gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught. And so our application, our sending, the thing I want us to dwell on this week is these three things. One, reflect on God's work. Reflect on his how. Reflect on his how and do it individually. Man, how has God brought you through this? Because when I look at my story and I think about, man, before even that moment where we thought, man, Bible study seems like a good idea, way, way, way before that foreknowledge, God knew me and God set my fate upon his sovereignty. Reflect on those things. Reflect on God's work. Then give thanks, as Paul encourages the church in Thessalonica. Give thanks. Sing, pray, joy, eat together, I mean, whatever to make his name great, to celebrate and give thanks for what he has done. And then lastly, hold to God's word and truth for your life. In other words, be conformed to the image that God originally had for all of humanity. And as you do that, continue to point others that direction too. Amen? Let's pray. for your grace, for your mercy, for the hope that we get. God, your word is really good. And God, I know even as we try and break down what you've done to accomplish the things you've accomplished, God, that we fall incredibly short. God, there, there are not enough words in the world to describe the depths of what you do. There's not enough adjectives to describe just the weights and the beauty of them. God, not enough verbs to, to work through all the actions that you are doing to accomplish your great purpose. And so, God, in our limitation, we just, we just ask for the grace of Christ to continually guide us and shape us. God, we pray for humility. This is about you. It's not about us. God, we just pray that as we now celebrate and give thanks in reflection on how good you are and what you've done for us, God, that this place would resound with the name of the King. God, that our city would hear it. God, that they would in turn look to you. God, we pray 
that this, this golden chain, Lord, would be true for thousands and thousands and thousands of people in our city and across our world. God, we thank you for the mysteries of who you are and the blessings we have in just being able to get to know you a little bit. So Lord, bless us as we sing. Be here in this place. Holy Spirit, convict and draw us closer to yourself. It's in your name we pray. Amen.